Um, we are in the middle. We're in the middle now. Uh, this is our fourth out of fifth messages in a series called Follow, a discipleship series that we're doing. And so I'm excited for us to continue this today. We have a really important aspect of discipleship to talk about this morning. And I think it's something that most of us have experienced in our life at some point. And for parents, those of you who have ever raised kids all the way up through high school and beyond, I think you've experienced the principle that we're talking about this morning at home. And anybody that's ever had a friend, and that friend has done something that they had to ask for forgiveness, for your forgiveness, and then maybe you've realized that they've done it again, and they've had to ask forgiveness again, and maybe you realize that now my friend seems to really have a problem, they've done it again, and they've got to ask for forgiveness again. If you've ever been giving the forgiveness or asking for it, I think you know what the spiritual principle in today's message is like. And so as we work our way towards this principle, let's recite our memory verse together and get back in the flow of what we're talking about about discipleship. So let's see how many of you remember this. Just read along with me. I'm gonna read it out loud and you're gonna fill in the blanks with me as we go. Are you ready, church? Are you awake, church? Are you really awake, church? Yeah, okay, all right, here we go. Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. Good, you see how I did that there? Okay, be ready because next week I'm not reading it. You are. And so there'll be blanks, and you'll all be reading it. As a congregation, united as one, one voice to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Okay, good. So here's our verse. Imitate me just as I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. This is setting the stage for our entire series on discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means I'm looking at Jesus, and I'm an apprentice of his lifestyle, and I'm aware that others are watching me and that others are copying what I do, and they're calling it faith. And so it is a serious responsibility, but a joyful responsibility. Last week, we were discussing a long obedience in the same direction. And our church has put something in place to help anyone who's raising children or helping the spiritual development of children in the home to encourage those kids to have a long obedience in the same direction that starts early and is built up through real discipleship exercises. Our shepherds and Greg Ziegler, who's the minister of the Home Point Ministry, have put a lot of time into helping make this available for our congregation, and we call it Faith Path. Faith Path is a strategy that we put in the hands of moms and dads or grandparents uh, or whoever is raising the children. And it's a birthday-driven strategy that is meant to cue on certain birthdays during the life of the child an idea about what could be possible for discipleship this year in our home. And so the first year when the child is born, mom and dad will receive a communication from the church that says on a such and such date, we're gonna have a parent dedication. And we want to bless mom and dad in the name of the Lord in the congregation as they dedicate to raise their children to be disciples. And as those children grow, most years on their birthday, the child and the parent receive a communication from the church 
The kid gets a happy birthday. And for mom and dad, it's here is a tool that you could consider using this year. Some examples of the tools are helps and guides for family devotional time. Things to start leading your children through learning how to give, learning how to pray, learning how to serve. And of course, anyone could structure these things in their home any way that they choose. But our church believes so strongly, and our shepherds believe so strongly, that discipleship takes some intentional planning, that it's not something that happens by accident, that we would love to put this in the hands of anyone who wants to use it. And so all you have to do to sign up to use this program is message our church office or message Greg, and we'd be glad to get you enrolled in it. Amen, Greg? Amen. Amen, church? Amen. All right. There was a man in the first half of the 20th century named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I would assume that many of you have heard of him. He was a German Christian. He was a teacher, professor of Bible, and he was known for being a pacifist. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote extensively about Christian living and about pacifism and about the way that Christians are supposed to be disciples of Christ. His most famous work is probably the one on the screen behind me, which was called simply in German, discipleship. But everything that Bonhoeffer believed in was challenged when the Nazi regime came to power before and then in World War II. And I would assume that any of you who have heard the story of Bonhoeffer probably know this startling fact, that he, as a pacifist, made the decision to help a secret, covert group of operatives to attempt an assassination of Adolf Hitler. How can a Christian pacifist take part in an assassination attempt? Well, what happens is that all the things that we think we believe get stretched and hammered on and tried out in real life when hard choices come. Some of you have experienced choices like this. You thought, for sure, I believe that this is true. I believe God has forgiven me and I've received his grace. And so now, because I'm happy and I'm joyful in Jesus, I'm not going to be sinning anymore. And then later, you start to have to hammer out faith in real life. You have to start to test it in real life situations. And you begin to realize, boy, I'm still susceptible to a whole lot of fault and sin. Others of you thought, I've received Christ and I'm growing in maturity and I've got love now. I'm going to be able to treat people with acceptance. I'm going to be able to treat them like Jesus said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And then things get tested in the real life vice grips, right? In the, in the part of life where you're in a, in a tough spot between a rock and a hard place. You're in the furnace. You're in the fire. And you've got to realize the hard way Boy, I'm not as good at loving as I thought I was. And all of these things about faith, the ideal on the one side and the reality on the other, are the tension of Christianity that we live in the middle of. And one of the most important tensions in Christianity, one that we all experience at some point in our life, is how we handle grace. So in the history of our churches, the churches of Christ, grace has been somewhat of a volatile topic. There have been times in our own history when grace was so underemphasized, almost forgotten, nearly omitted from the gospel, 
that you would think in the real testing of life and the vice grips of preaching in real life churches of Christ that the only thing that mattered was following the rules. And there have been other times in the history of Christianity where grace has been so overemphasized and it seems as if the only thing that matters is you just get grace for free and Jesus expects nothing that when the real testing of life comes, we find out we haven't become disciples. I haven't learned how to obey. I haven't learned the cost of discipleship. Grace has become cheap. And so Bonhoeffer wrote in his book called Discipleship that the German church before World War II had become accustomed to cheap grace. And America is no less at fault or no less susceptible to this same problem. We always seem to get a little out of balance. It's always hard for us to hold equally in both hands that God has given us unmerited favor, that we've received salvation because of nothing that we have done, and yet on the other hand, to stay faithful in obedience. We so often tip the scales, and we think that our obedience is earning our salvation, or we think that because of grace, it's really not that important to obey. And this is the economy that Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. Here's a few of his words. Paul said, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? You know, I mean, it makes him look pretty good to forgive us. Shouldn't we go ahead and make him look better? Let's just keep on sinning and he'll pour out even more grace. Of course not, Paul says. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And I told you, parents, that I think the spiritual principle today is something that you've experienced if you've raised children. Here's one way it can work out. There is a certain thing that happens in the human mind that whenever we're given something for free, we think that we deserve it. Anybody ever been in this position? You've got a student and you really want to bless them with the cell phone. And so you decide, Johnny, we're going to buy your cell phone for you. Happy birthday. And then Johnny turns 18 and he begins to work. And he brings home the paycheck. And you say, Johnny, now that you're earning a living, we want you to pay for the cell phone. And what does Johnny say? That's mean. That's not fair. You used to pay for that for me. One kid arrives at youth group driving a brand new 2017 automobile. And all of the rest of the kids at youth group go home and they say, hey mom, hey dad, you know what I want for my birthday? A brand new car. And mom and dad laugh. They get a good belly laugh out of it. <laughs> That's a good one. What do you really want? You know, a flashlight. <laughs> we could get you two of them and you could strap them to the front of your little push cart, you know. <laughs> but it's not fair. Somebody else is getting something for free and I want it too. Jesus talks about this quite a bit in his teachings whenever people become jealous of the grace that others have received. You might remember a parable about workers. 
some who show up in the morning and some who show up later in the day, and they all get the same wage at the end, and the ones who work longer say, it's not fair. They got more than I did for less. Jesus says, isn't it my grace to give? Isn't it my money to share? Why do you think it's unfair? Paul talks about it in Galatians 5. Another church that was having trouble with this idea of balancing grace and obedience. And he says to the Galatians, you've been called to live in freedom, brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. And for all of you who have ever had the friend or been the friend that kept messing up and doing the same thing over and over and coming back and saying, I'm really sorry this time, it's not going to happen again, how does that feel? Well, you start to feel after the second time or the third time or the fourth time, maybe they're not really sorry. Or maybe you're the one who keeps coming back asking for forgiveness. And you come back, and each time, your hope that you'll be received with love is dwindling. Because you know the way that the economy of certain things work, and you know that trust is wearing out. And then fear sets in, and you wonder, will they accept me this time? See, these are the things that we're all used to experiencing. For you to really believe that somebody means that they're sorry, you want to see some change. Because you feel sorry, you want to change. And every parent wants their kid to learn at some point in life, you can't have everything for free. You got to pay for some of it. And every kid says, that's not fair. And so Bonhoeffer's book, when it was translated into English, received this title, The Cost of Discipleship, because he speaks so much about this economy of grace. How much should you get for free, and how much should you have to earn? This is a tough question, so I'm welcoming you to dive into it with me a little further this morning. This is what Bonhoeffer meant when he said that grace is becoming cheap in our culture. He said, cheap grace means justification of sin, but not the sinner. And in this statement is a pretty loaded theological word, justification. Let's for a minute just say that it means made right. And so Bonhoeffer said, the problem in my Germany, and maybe we'd echo the problem in our America, is that cheap grace means we say sin is okay, instead of helping the sinner become okay. Justification of sin but not the sinner means we'll just dole out forgiveness and not look for any change in the life of the person who's coming to Christ. And so it means this. It means in the church, forgiveness without repentance. And Bonhoeffer is looking at the history of the church in the world saying, you know, typically the church says that we offer forgiveness because people repent, not forgiveness without repentance, but in Germany it's starting to get you know, turned upside down. We preach forgiveness, but we don't look for repentance. We don't ask for life change. We don't ask people to become a disciple of Jesus. We've started handing out free cars to everyone, and now everyone wants to. 
So what do we do about it? And he said it, it gets worse than that. He said this is when baptism happens, but there's no community. And so Bonhoeffer was seeing a trend in Germany, people receiving baptism, but they didn't feel like they needed to become part of the life of the church. I've got a spirituality between me and God, and God knows how I feel about him, and sometimes we think about it together on Sunday morning when I'm at home, right? And Bonhoeffer's like, wait a second. You know, if you want baptism, what that means is entrance into a community, so Baptism only means anything inside of community. You've got to have the grace and the discipleship. And then he points out this one. This is cheap grace's communion, the Lord's Supper, without any confession of sin. And in this case, he's not talking about everybody standing up and saying like, this is what I did this week. He's talking about the attitude in church where we take communion, but we forget as a church, as a corporate body, to confess to Jesus, we still need your grace. And so when the church separates these, the economy of grace is being cheapened. He said absolution without personal confession is another form of cheap grace. Absolution basically means forgiveness. And he said we need to be confessing our sins to each other. This doesn't mean that at church we're going to start asking every one of you to stand up on Sunday morning and say, well, here's everything I did wrong. But your shepherds and your ministers believe that the best type of repentance and healing occurs when we follow the commands of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit teaches us in the New Testament, confess your sins to each other so that you can be healed. And so if confession isn't happening anywhere in your life, if real personal Detailed confession isn't happening between you and your spouse at home, between you and some small group that you're part of, between you and an accountability person. If you don't have a mentor, a brother or a sister that you can share your sin with, then in our culture, absolution is becoming cheaper. And so what do we do about this? Without becoming legalists, what do we do about this? Because the last thing we want to do is start making people feel like they got to earn their salvation. That's also contrary to the gospel. Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus. And I would add this, cheap grace is what happens when we want Jesus as Savior, but we don't want him as Lord. Church, did you hear this? Please write it down. This is really important for this morning. Cheap grace is what happens when we want Jesus as Savior, but we don't want him as Lord. I want all the benefits and none of the responsibility. I want the cell phone without the bill, the car without the bill, the forgiveness without life change. I don't want the responsibility of Jesus directing my life. And the one challenge that Jesus gives us, the one thing that can change this, is when we learn to obey and love. And so this is the direction that we're moving the rest of this morning. Now here's an example from this week's Bible reading, if you've been doing the New Testament reading, that I thought was really timely. There's a verse in Matthew chapter 10 that says, do not worry about what to say. And this sparked a memory for me from when I was in Bible college, and we had a preacher who incidentally, uh, this preaching teacher was the brother of our Phil Thompson, who leads singing here. And so Mr. Thompson, Dr. Thompson, the Bible teacher at Harding, was our preaching class teacher. And once in a while, we would have somebody in a preaching class 
who would like to argue this point and say, you know, Dr. Thompson or Dr. Neller, I don't think that it's really good for us to plan our sermons in advance because the Bible says, don't worry about what to say. And you know, they're having us write outlines and do extensive research and spend hours in the library. And students who would rather not have to pay the price, the cost of good preaching, would say, well, in the economy that we've got, I've got a good excuse here in the Bible to say, I don't really need all of that discipline. The Holy Spirit promises, don't worry about what to say. You just get up there and say it, and God will give you words. And what would our teacher respond with? Zoom out. Read the whole sentence. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say. And so Dr. Thompson would respond. Next time you get arrested for your faith in Jesus, don't bother bringing an outline. You don't have to apologize to the arresting authorities when your hands are, you know, shackled and say to them, I'm really sorry, guys. I left my pocket sermons at home. You know, like I wore the wrong jeans today. I don't have one ready to go. Would you let me go home and get one? My hands are tied, literally. They'll say, no, you can't go home. So just tell them what the Spirit leads you to say. You know, this, this is a grace that comes with a price, this is a grace that the Holy Spirit will give for those who are arrested in Jesus. Not just because a student says, I don't really like studying. Bonhoeffer went on to say, grace is costly because it was costly to God. Because it costs God the life of God's son. You were bought with a price, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. You were bought with a price, and because nothing can be cheap to us, us which is costly to God. Amen, church. And so the, the, the economy of grace isn't situated or established on legalism. In Jesus' world, it's situated and established on love. You were bought with a price. And the great love that the grace of God begins to grow inside your heart causes you to begin to obey. The great love that God unleashes inside of you through the Holy Spirit when you realize you've received unmerited favor, free grace and forgiveness, if you love him, results in a transformed life. The cost of being a disciple, Jesus says in Luke 14, 25, to his disciples involves a little bit of giving up. And I want to walk through this with you as we wrap up this morning because Jesus is still, in Luke 14, en route to Jerusalem. You remember that three or four weeks ago we started in Luke chapter 9 and Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem. He had decided he was going to go, he was going to obey no matter the cost. And as we open up in Luke 14, it says large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and where is he traveling to? Well, he's still going to Jerusalem. And the cost of discipleship, Jesus is about to say, is an expensive economy. Luke 14, 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, whoo, strong words, Jesus. I thought you were all about love. It is not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, whoo, now, Jesus, you're starting to sound a little deranged. People that hate themselves and hate others are psychopaths, not disciples. Such a person cannot be my disciple. 
And so we have to believe that Jesus is speaking with some strategic exaggeration, some hyperbole for emphasis and dramatic effect. He doesn't mean go out and hate people, don't despise yourself, but he means that something has to happen in our heart where our greatest loyalties have always laid with ourself. And Jesus says there's got to be a break there. You've got to move away from your greatest loyalties being you. It's always about me. It's always about I. Take care of number one and start to become my disciple. This week in our reading plan that we're doing together, we read something very similar out of Matthew 10. And I hope some of you who are reading along in the plan will recognize and remember Matthew 10, 39 said this. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. And you notice here Jesus isn't speaking with hyperbole. He doesn't use the word hate. Here he's simply explaining what he meant. You've got to be willing to let go of yours. Hate their own life. Here's the next one in Luke 14, 27. Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now we think of this so often as figurative language because no one in our culture carries a cross. And sometimes we take this to mean anything at all that I feel bad about is carrying my cross for Jesus. If I'm suffering or I feel sad in any way, I'm carrying my cross for Jesus. But in his world and at his time, this isn't a figurative saying. This actually means some of them are going to have to carry a cross. And it always means that the price that we pay for grace, the price that we pay for love, is an attachment to Jesus that's so strong, so true, and so loving that if it did cost us our life, we'd gladly give it. And that we count suffering as the moments when we put it on the line for his name and not our own. That is carrying the cross. In our reading plan this week, in Matthew 10, we also read this verse, and I hope it sounds familiar to you who are reading along in the plan. Jesus said, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. They must carry their own cross. And finally, in Luke 14, 28 to 33, Jesus gives two pictures or two stories. And he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Don't you know, people, how economy works? You've got to be willing to pay the price. If you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you and say this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Jesus doesn't want this outcome for you. Jesus doesn't want your faith to be shipwrecked. He doesn't want your faith to become an embarrassment to you. He wants you to be able to finish well. And so he wants you to consider the cost of discipleship. The second picture is a king going to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Only if they're from Sparta, right? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is a long way off and he'll ask for terms of peace because the king knows it's better for us to not be outnumbered two to one so it would be better for me to just send a nice letter and say, hey, let's be friends than to go to war with this economy against me. 
In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. These are terribly frightening verses because it sounds like Jesus said, hate your family, die on a cross, and give up all your stuff. And it sounds like he said that because he said that. He said they have to count their own cost. And even though he's speaking in some measured exaggeration, he isn't kidding. There is something in our heart that must take place, not because of a legal requirement, but because of love, where we decide, I'm all in. I'm not hedging any bets anymore. I'm not holding back a few little things that I'll protect in case God doesn't work out. I'm all in. And God, if you call it to be used for your purpose, it's yours. If you call for that time back from me, it's yours. If you call for me to physically go to those people or leave this place, I'm yours. Because I'm all in, Jesus. Look at what Jesus says again. He says, if you do not give up everything you have. This is the frightening words, right? Because we think that the next thing the preacher is going to say is we're having a special offering today. (laughs) But he's not. I'm asking you to offer from your heart to God everything you have. I'm asking you to do what the Greek text says behind this verse, where it says very literally, turn around and look at your things and wave goodbye. It says, say farewell to everything you own. Turn and look at Jesus. It's the cost of discipleship. In our reading plan this week, Jesus put that same command in a very joyful way. He said, freely you have received, freely give. Do it with joy. And costly grace, we'll finish here today, has this truth underneath it. This truth that Jesus will speak two chapters from now as he's still on the road to Jerusalem, that you can't have two masters. In the story here, he's talking again about our love of money. You can't serve God and wealth because one will control you. But Jesus knows that this is also true inside of our hearts, and you know that this is true inside of your heart and mine. I can't serve myself and serve the Lord. I can't be saved by Jesus and just pretend that he's my Lord. I have to have the salvation and the leading of Jesus. I have to have the grace and the obedience to begin to grow in discipleship with him. Amen, church. Amen. And so this is what we want for every one of you. Not guilt, but joyful hope that in Jesus' plan, you can see real transformation and get into the life that only he can give. If that sounds good to you this morning, we would love to share more about it with you. And our shepherds always receive people at the front of the auditorium and the back of the auditorium in case you'd like to meet with them and pray or if you'd like to put on the Lord in baptism, or confess sins. And so we welcome you to respond in any way that's necessary or appropriate for you as we learn to count the cost together and as we stand and sing.